You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Hello, Editing Micah here. There's a weird creaky noise in the audio for this episode. It's because I was sitting at a bad desk. I apologize. I hope you still enjoy the episode. Welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax, currently swallowing a massive mouthful of tea, I should say. So, (laughs) sorry, what was your name again? Um, I'm Micah Han. That matters. Nothing. No tea in your mouth. No tea in my mouth. (laughs) Uh, This is not a tea podcast. This is a politics and pop culture podcast where we will be educating you about one exciting politics thing and one exciting pop culture thing that happened in the past month and Mm -hmm. in january 2021 it's a new year we've had a lot to choose from so i guess we should kick it off first with what are some things that happened in your personal life micah it is january 2021 man what a what a month um yeah i um what did happen in my personal life i've i've Somehow, I'm in BC, mm-hmm. British Columbia for the uninitiated, and I am staying here for the foreseeable future, I guess. Um, That's exciting. It is exciting. It's really nice. Um, I'm. I've, this is my last semester of my master's. It's weird to say, because I remember me saying this about my undergrad. Like, the penultimate semester, and then the ultimate yeah, semester. It, it is the ultimate semester. It's the ultimate semester. Ways. I'm taking my last class. I'm writing my thesis. Um, it's very weird. But yeah, I'm doing a lot of stats. Basically, that's my life right now. That sounds really fun. Oh yeah, it's been a joy. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if things are that much more fun here in New York. It is, I mean, we only speak in Celsius, so it was like minus five degrees today. Oh my. So yeah, it got me missing my time in California quite a bit. But it has been nice to be back. I have got to have my favorite pizza again and mm-hmm. my favorite bagels again. So that has been a definite upside. The noisy radiator that you might hear, maybe more of a downside. It sounds mm-hmm. like a, a mattress being blown up, like a oh, nice. like a blow-up mattress. So if there is like kind of a hissing or a huffing sound at any point during this recording, there's not a camping trip happening in my vicinity. It is the radiator. So that's fun. Um, besides statistics, though, did you do any reading, watching, or listening this month? Because um, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, maybe you decided one of your New Year's resolutions was to get into podcasts and you found us. We do like to start off with some reading, watching, and listening moments. So reading, Micah, what did you read? I've read so many things, and I'm going to talk to you about two of them. I had oh. a great, I'm like ahead on my Goodreads goals. It's been great. Oh, what is I'm your trying Goodreads to keep up that. goal? My Goodreads goal is, let me remember, I think it's 30 books a year, which is uh-huh. very reasonable for me considering I have to write a thesis this year. Yeah. I think that's like attainable. Um, it's like one every one and a bit weeks. That's good. Something you can like do that. that. I, I believe in good. you. I believe in myself. So yeah. two, one of the books I read. Um, both of the books I'm going to talk about are nonfiction. The first one is Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Ooh. Patrick Raiden Keefe. Keefe? Yeah. Keefe? Yeah. There's too many E's. Um, <laughs> That's us Irish in our vow. <laughs> exactly. Love them. 
Um, this book I actually received for Christmas 2019, and I finally read it, so I'm proud Good of myself. Um, it's a New York Times bestseller about the Troubles, um, but it is loosely centered around one of the women who disappeared, Jean McConville. So, this book is is great. Um, it's about specifically the IRA, certain central IRA members in the Troubles, um, and also about this project that was done to record their memories and how that project kind of completely blew up and didn't go well. Yeah. Um, I think it definitely lives up to the hype of the New York Times bestseller, everyone reading this in 2019, if you can remember 2019. <laughs> um, it's like extremely well written I couldn't put it down um what I really loved about it is that it isn't like a straight up history of the troubles but it also doesn't require like a huge amount of background knowledge um so as long as you like understand the geographical and political differences between the UK Britain Ireland and Northern Ireland which like many people don't so maybe go google that it's very offensive so it is (laughs) um if you understand that then I think that you can enter this book and not feel, like, too confused. I did Google quite a few things, but they were mostly around, like, specific cultural moments in the 60s and 70s that I right. didn't understand, but not about the troubles themselves. I think I'll um, have to add this to my list. It sounds really captivating. Yeah, I um, before and after I read it, I tried to figure out whether Irish people were offended by it, like specifically Northern Irish people, because this guy, the author is actually American. Um, he's like Irish American in the way like- Yeah, his, his name sounds fairly, fairly yeah. Irish, but sometimes that doesn't mean a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but from what I could tell, it seems like a really realistic portrayal. Um, maybe members of Sinn Féin wouldn't be like super happy about the things that he says in it, but it seems to be accurate. Yeah, I feel I know what you mean. Okay, well, this sounds good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, The other book I read, actually listened to, also nonfiction, is called Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia by Sabrina Strings. So this book, um, many people were recommending it when everyone was reading books in June in Black Lives Matter post the big protests. Um, So this book is about um, connecting fat phobia to racism. And what mm-hmm. it does is it goes through the history of vilifying fatness um, from the Renaissance to present day. And it has a really nuanced and interesting argument about how this connection between like badness and fatness is connected to race. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I really liked about it is that Sabrina Strings is an academic, she's a sociologist, and so it felt academically rigorous but it was also really accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I think you read these books that are about history and they're not like written by historians. Not that journalists can't write wonderful books. Like um, Say Nothing is written by a journalist and it's fantastic and seems really well-researched. What was the book that we talked... I'm pretty sure we talked about it. That one a couple years ago where somebody released a book saying that someone had been executed, but they'd like miss understood what the word meant and they actually hadn't at all do you remember that i sort of do there was like they'd analyze some historical text and Mm -hmm. they had like misunderstood 
a word which completely changed the story then and it wasn't until they went on some like morning show and someone was like you do know that's not what it means right and it was a whole mm-hmm. a whole thing but we can put that in the show notes because that's probably an example of what you mean <laughs> yes um this book for as far as i understand doesn't do that Good. um it's really interesting i've been really interested in understanding the politics around fat phobia and the history behind it more um because it's something i like frankly don't know enough about um and i think the connection to racism and like through that history which i already did know quite a bit about um made it really accessible and interesting um so i would highly recommend both of those thank you micah i'm definitely going to add those to my reading list um i've got a couple that i hope you might add to yours so my first one is called interior chinatown by charles Yu, and i bought this one in a bookstore when we went on this like little day trip in california but i'd actually seen it in another bookstore the week before and like almost bought it because the cover is so pretty and then was tempted the second time because i saw a couple of my friends on instagram um talking about how much they loved it but it is about a man named Willis Wu who has these like tiny bit parts in a cop show that is in perpetual production at a Chinatown restaurant. And he, as an actor, dreams of one day being cast as Kung Fu Guy. And he believes that's the highest aspiration an Asian actor in America can have. And the book is basically pulling that assumption apart so you know really exploring racism in america and hollywood stereotypes but in a really funny way but also a super emotional way i think it juggles both of those opposites really really well Um, and it's just like a really creative and different book mainly because it's mostly written like a screenplay so yeah i think if there's any film people in your life they might enjoy it as well because it is written in that way and it centers on film so i really really enjoyed that one and it's really really quick i know i see like a few people on goodreads who had read it as an audiobook I don't think I would recommend that just because of the screenplay format, mm-hmm. but they said it was like a super short audiobook, like four or five hours kind of thing. So cool. um, I, it sounded really familiar to me and I just Googled and it did win the 2020 National Book Award. Yes, definitely an award winner for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I loved that. And I also loved a book called These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong. And this one is a Romeo and Juliet retelling, but super creative because it's centered on um, these teenagers. They're like 18, 19 called Juliet Tsai and Roma Montagov. And they are members of rival gangs in 1920 Shanghai. And they have to team up to investigate a mysterious madness and a monster that's plaguing the city so yeah. yeah I think it's a really creative retelling like I think it's a super original story which sounds strange when you're talking about a retelling but she's obviously got like a real passion for the emotional core of Romeo and Juliet and has spun that into a super different story which I think is awesome um she's also like ridiculously young when she wrote this <laughs> like we're gonna feel really bad she's like a current UPenn student so she's oh I think she's in like her junior or senior year at the moment um and she's from New Zealand so it was cool to see a fellow southern hemisphere you know do so well over here and the sequel is coming soon so it's gonna be a duology I believe they call it when there's 
mm-hmm. two books in the series. Um, so that one is going to be super, super fun. And I'm really, really excited about it. Um, but that's my highlights of reading this month. Did you watch anything that you adored? I watched so many things. Oh. Um, and I will quickly go through three of my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. It's really actually eight, but it will be three. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I promise. So the my favorite thing I watched, like, hands down, is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which was a 2020 movie. And it's about a teenage girl and her cousin who travel from rural Pennsylvania to New York City to get an abortion because she can't legally obtain one at home because she's underage. Question. Yes. Is this the one with the girl from Euphoria? Or is that a different one? I I don't think so. Like a dark-haired girl? No. Okay. The main actress in this is... This is her first role. Oh, okay. I feel um, like... She- yeah, there's like another one, but I think they were like in Texas or something. So that I might... think uh, yeah, that one seems like fun and like a movie about friendship, and this movie is just sad. Okay, like the principal feeling is like yeah, sad. Um, it's so beautiful, but like heartbreaking. Um, I think it's the least flattering portrayal I've ever seen of New York City. Um, it like perfectly captures those moments when I think people have felt like you can feel this in other cities too, but in New York, you can feel it like to an extreme degree when you've like all of a sudden you're lost and you don't know where you are and you're really overwhelmed and there's just like thousands of people everywhere and you can't figure it out. And they have this wonderful device of they carry around the suitcase with them everywhere they go and it's huge and it's old and they have to like carry it through the turnstiles and upstairs and like every time they go to the Planned Parenthood like they have to get it checked because like going to a Planned Parenthood in the States is dangerous yeah um but it's just it's so wonderful and like I think abortion politics is something that like seems can feel abstract because of how like it's been portrayed but this really brings it home to like the intimate effect it has on people's lives and like also it kind of makes you very angry at all the men there isn't a single good man in this movie which is really sad oh no oh so this is like the opposite of the queen's gambit which i haven't seen but i do know people Mm -hmm. say that like one of the nice things about that is that there's lots of nice helpful men Mm -hmm. um Maybe that's the palate cleanser after this one. Yeah, yeah, and probably. So that's never, rarely, sometimes, always. Um, the next entirely different movie, On the Rocks, which is Sofia Coppola's latest movie. Oh, I can't believe um, I haven't seen this yet. It's fantastic. I think it's, it's, about, it's on Apple TV, right? That's it's why on I Apple TV, it. yeah. yeah. Um, it's about a woman and her dad um, as they try and uh, find out if her husband is cheating on her. The woman is uh, Rashida Jones dad bill murray perfect he drives a really cool car i'm so mexico funny sweet wonderful that's all you need to know it's sophia coppola like yeah we love her um the other movie series of movies um it's called small acts by steve mcqueen mm-hmm. so this is an eight part series of movies um it's on amazon prime in canada and the u.s but it's a bbc production um and it's about 
um, basically the experience of members of the West Indian diaspora in London. So each movie is a v- is very different from each other, but they're all about the experience of blackness in England in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it takes, it like looks at these in different ways. So these are like full-on movies, but they're all connected through this theme mm-hmm. of blackness in England. Um, my two favorite, if you don't want to watch all five, I think mm-hmm. I've seen four now. I haven't seen the fifth one. Um, Mangrove. Wait, did you say there was eight parts before or five? No, there's five, but okay. I, there, that means there's... I can't do math. No. Yeah, that means there's seven movies in my title, not eight. Oh, this. Okay. I see what you were doing. Yes. Your, yeah. Yeah. I'm caught up. I understand caught numbers. Up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I Two favorites. Um, Mangrove, which is about the trial of the Mangrove Nine. Um, this is a true story about nine um, people who were arrested for protesting against police brutality. And then on the complete flip side is Lover's Rock, which is just about a pop-up party, which is parties that happened in the 70s and 80s in London because many members of the Black community, all of the Black community, weren't really allowed in London clubs. So they would, like, set up their own parties in, like, random people's houses. And it's just about, like, the music and the culture and, the, the like, this experience of, like, going out, which... There's a, like, six, seven-minute-long scene of just people dancing and singing along to a song. And it's, like, given the fact that we can't do that, yeah, made it even more, yeah. like, sweet and poignant. They're wonderful and great. So, would definitely recommend. I like, okay. Yeah, I've heard a lot about, a lot about that. So, mm-hmm. adding to the list. <laughs> um, have you seen Promising Young Woman? Yet. I haven't. I'm okay. so jealous that you've seen it. It costs yeah. like twenty six dollars to rent here, and it's the only way you can watch it. Yeah, I've heard and it's very it's difficult to obtain. Yes, which is ridiculous. Like everyone wants to watch it. Yeah, we saw it at a drive-in in California, cool. which I was very lucky. Yeah, the one that was like closest to us didn't have it, and I was like, no, we got to go to this other one. It was like an hour mm-hmm. away. I was like, we have to. I think this movie looks really great. So, um, yeah. It is amazing. You've likely seen the trailers because this was supposed to be released ages ago and I don't want to give too much away. I actually I don't know. It's kind of hard. I found the trailers kind of misleading and I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people found the trailers misleading and that this was going to be like a fun like revenge kind of movie of like girl beats the bad men sort of thing but it's actually really, really smart. It is funny at times, but it's also like so unbelievably dark that I had to watch behind my turtleneck. Nice, like at how time. I watch Succession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely bits <laughs> in this that I think are probably darker than Succession. But yeah, without giving too much away, if you've somehow missed it, it is uh, starring Carrie Mulligan, who plays a woman called Cassie, who's trying to right some wrongs from her past. I would say. Um, so yeah, it's not this kind of like you go girl, beat the bad men movie that I think a lot of people were getting from the trailer and the poster. There is some very, very real and very, very dark moments in it. So prepare yourself, but really mind blowing movie. I also was blown away by (laughs) blown away season two. It's the best show ever. If you guys aren't watching it, get on it. It is a competition show 
here it's on Netflix, pretty sure it's on Netflix in Ireland, like the other countries as well. And it's about the art of glass blowing. So, mm. you know, if you like Top Chef or Great British Bake Off or I mean, I feel like they have a competition show for everything now. Like there's a barbecue. Oh, oh I discovered there's a Lego competition show. Yes. Yeah, so right? Yeah, it's Australian. And it's Australian. I yeah. love Australian competition shows because they're yeah. like really catty and mean. They just like enjoy doing what they're doing. Yeah. Hamish Blake is the presenter of that. He's like really sweet and funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's Lego Masters. There's like a barbecue one. There's like the special effects makeup one. There's like a ton mm-hmm. of them. But really love Blown Away. It's so fun and so dramatic. And there's just like so much pretty glass. I get so into it. I watched the season in like 24 hours. Absolutely sped through it. So nice. definitely recommend that. Um, listening. What have you listened to for the first month of the year? So while I watched a lot and I read a lot, I did not listen to anything. Um, I listened to the same music that I always listen to. Um, unfortunately, you gotta get the, any like, new recommendations. Okay, I've got one. Um, I'm actually going to dive more into listening uh, in our pop culture segment, which is coming up soon. But I have really loved the two evermore bonus tracks that Taylor Swift released this month. Um, There's one called Right Where You Left Me that I adore. People have long speculated that like a fair few of her songs are about her friendship or whatever kind of relationship she had with Carly Kloss. And I've kind of thought that like mostly they felt a bit ridiculous. Um, but this one, like I I, I could see it. Um, and then she also has the second song, It's Time to Go, definitely about Scooter Braun. So if you want some little music industry goss, um, if you need to get up to speed on that, I would recommend our past episode, the name of which we will pop in the show notes, where we do um, recap the whole Taylor Swift Scooter Braun saga. Mm-hmm. But that song is a good way to dive back into that. And without further ado, we must dive into our politics and pop culture segment. So, this month in politics, I thought I would talk about um, the global gag rule. You've so, had a lot to choose from this month. I've had so much to choose from, <laughs> and I felt like we were a little too far away from insurrection, um, that COVID is still a lot and changes every day. Um, so, here we are. This is something I'm really, like, something I'm already interested in. So Right. Hit us up. my knowledge with you. So, the inauguration of a new president in the U.S. leads to a lot of different changes. Um, and with all that's been happening in the world, you may have missed one that it's kind of now routine for American presidents um, new elections. So, since the Reagan administ- administration, every time the presidency switches parties, an executive order called the Global Gag Rule is either reinstated or rescinded. Um, This executive order intimately affects the health of millions of people across the world, but barely affects the lives of Americans themselves. So, as some would argue, like many things in American politics, this all comes down to abortion politics. So, Hmm. the global gag rule, the ping pong of a policy. What is it, you may ask? So, the global gag rule, or the GGR, um, or... The Mexico City policy 
is an executive order that presents very prevents various international organizations that receive U.S. funding from providing or even discussing abortion with the people that they're helping. So this is any like NGOs, and it has varied over time of which which NGOs this affects. But basically, if you get U.S. money, you can't provide abortions or discuss them. Um, but this isn't using American funding to provide abortions or like give out pamphlets. Since 1973, it's been illegal to use taxpayer money to fund abortions internationally. So all the reason why it's called the gag rule is that it's literally just about speaking about it. It has nothing to do with provide like using U.S. funding to do it. You can't use any funding that you receive from anyone, even funding you collect yourself, to discuss or provide abortions. Hmm. And if so, you do, you don't get American money. So. So okay, let's say we take. I'm sure you're going to tell me something about Mexico City soon, but let's mm-hmm. say we take Mexico. If Mexico gets U.S. funding for education, let's say, then so how can they provide abortions? So it's currently Mex- tied to health. So it's, okay. it depends on the presidency, which we'll like get into. But basically, say you're an NGO in Mexico that um, Oh, so it's not the country as a whole. It's whole, like... It's the specific NGOs. Oh, okay. I don't yeah. actually... I can't remember in detail if, like, say, like, the Ugandan health department receives aid, whether that means that they also can't do this. I'm pretty sure it's just organizations because it would be, well, no, actually, tied aid. This is something, tied aid is a term that, like, often is used to uh-huh. refer to the this gag rule because it means that, like, the aid given is tied to certain conditionalities. Okay, okay, okay. So in this case, the conditionality is no abortion in any form. Um, okay. All yeah. right. I think. Okay. I think I understand it a little bit more now. Okay. I think it'll be like made clear right. in its history. So, the policy first came um, about with the Reagan administration at the International Conference on Population in 1984. So, a little aside and backstory. The International Conference on Population is actually really interesting in and of itself. So in the 70s and 80s, before feminism like really hit the international health scene, um, the UN and other related international health organizations were really concerned about overpopulation as a problem that was facing the world. Many argue retrospectively and at the time that this was both unfounded, that like overpopulation and the way that they were conceiving it wasn't a worry at all, um, but also deeply racist in that the overpopulation that they were most concerned of was of, like, India, China, African nations. Right. Um, So every few years, um, the UN and member organizations would hold a conference and they come up to salute with solutions for these problems. Um, And often that looked like forcing birth control onto developing nations. So they would tie aid in a different way by forcing um, organizations to pr- like push birth control methods on specifically women in developing nations. So this right. looked like the implant, which is a very permanent, it's a semi-permanent birth control, right? It's not easy to take out yourself. It's five years. 
Um, IUDs are really popular in this as well. So tied into at the same kind of organization and thought process, um, we see the global gag rule come into effect, which was dreamt up at this conference. So originally, um, when Reagan brought in the global gag rule in 84, it was tied specifically to the U.S. Agency for International Development and only to the family planning programs that they funded. So if you provided aid specifically to like distribute birth control, um, condoms, whatever, yeah. pill, all of that, you couldn't discuss abortion. So that's intimately related to the things that the International Conference on Reproduction on, on Population was like thinking about, which is why it comes out of that. So Reagan, Bush Sr.'s president, status quo remains. But then Clinton enters office and he rescinds the GGR, um, which led to harsh criticisms from Republicans um, who both tried to make the GGR permanent through legislation hmm. and meant that um, blocked every single family planning bill that Clinton tried to pass, whether that be domestic or international, just kind of out of spite. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't a great time for reproductive rights. Um, after Clinton's presidency, um, George W. Bush is elected and he brings back the global gag rule. Hmm. And not only does he bring it back, he expands it. So he expands it to the mandate of the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. And that means it's no longer just about family planning. It's about almost the broader field of reproductive health. Yeah. So specifically, it becomes tied to combating HIV and AIDS. Um, which, if you cast your mind back to the early 2000s, HIV and AIDS, well, still a huge issue in North America... Um, cure not cures, but um, different therapies have been found so that people aren't dying of AIDS anymore. This isn't the case in specifically African nations where HIV and AIDS is starting to ravage the continent. Um, and so all of a sudden, there's a huge amount of funding for this, but it's become tied to not speaking about abortion at all. Mm, okay. So it begins to affect an even larger group of people. Um, as you would assume with this pattern, when Obama becomes president, he tries, he gets rid of the global gag rule. And for eight more years, people who receive organizations who receive U.S. funding can talk about abortion again. Um, but of course, um, as we have seen, Trump then mm -hmm. reinstates it. And Trump doesn't, Trump and Pence, because Pence is very... Um, interested in restricting abortion rights, um, they actually extend the global gag rule even further to now reflect any health aid at all. So this includes stuff like malaria and tuberculosis, things that are completely unrelated to yeah. reproduction become tied to abortion. So that could mean that like, say your organization, you have a big health organization, right? and you... Um, like the majority of what you do is malaria and tuberculosis. Yeah. Like help. But you have like while you do that, you sometimes you talk to women um 
about like or just like you don't even have to do anything reproductive you just think that it's important that women have access to right abortions if you decide that you want to maintain that policy all of a sudden all your american funding is gone right okay hmm. um it's a real pickle it's a real pickle um so with this expansion that meant that nearly one half of all bilateral economic assistance that the u.s was giving internationally was now tied to a gag rule this wow. represented 8.8 billion dollars so um, that meant that organizations had to choose between either keeping this money that they desperately needed yeah. or not like providing a service that they thought was necessary Valuable. and yeah. like yeah. someone important for people's human rights. So here we are. We've, we finally made it to 2021 and Biden has rescinded the global gag rule again. But that doesn't mean that it won't come back if a Republican is elected president mm-hmm. again um so so far i've kind of gone over the ping pong of yeah. this policy but obviously this policy has huge impacts so many clinics refuse to comply with the global gag rule and so lose funding so one of the big international reproductive organizations is the mary stope mary stopes international and they operate in 37 countries and saw huge losses of funding. So they had to shut down clinics. They had to, um, like, close, like, mobile clinics. Like, and in many, many countries because they still wanted to provide access to abortion. Um, this also la- led to the huge amount of opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a Dutch-funded project in Ethiopia had raised $9 million dollars to um, provide reproductive health funding. And because one of the organizations attached to that um, to that project received U.S. funding, all of a sudden they couldn't use that $9 million. Oh, yeah, okay. So it just kind of disappeared. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that happens is that organizations, some organizations choose to comply because they need this American funding. And that means that all of a sudden, the services they were providing um, disappear. Mm-hmm. So there's no longer abortion services. Or they choose not to comply and they lose funding. So this right. means that funding can be diverted. So in, I was reading about um, in Uganda, the Ugandan Refugee Agency had to divert a huge amount of funding away from feeding and clothing and rehoming you, um, refugees to put that money into reproductive health because as we know lacking reproductive health services is can be just as detrimental as lacking food water shelter um there was less money to go around generally um it also like we saw with trump like affects different organizations and their ability to provide other services so um other services include HIV and AIDS prevention um, and care, but also a huge part of a lot of these organizations are efforts to decrease maternal mortality. Um, if they no longer have funding, they can't do that. Um, one thing we do know for sure, while it does decrease funding for all of these things, there's no evidence whatsoever that it decreases abortion rates. Right, as this so seems women are to still be the case whenever yeah. this happens in any 
instance. Yeah. In any of these things, what we've seen is abortions still happen. They just happen in an unsafe way. Yeah. Um, so, like all things, we can take a COVID-19 angle. Um, specifically, the pandemic has created a huge barrier to women accessing birth control around the world. Um, the UNFPA predicts that 7 million unintended pregnancies are going to happen. Oh my god. What? Birth control. Um, because... And this is for a variety of reasons. Either you can't go to the clinic because it's closed, uh -huh. or in a lot of cases, women access birth control without the consent of their husbands, and because they're at home all the time, they can't leave to access those services. Wow. Um, also, like, medical shortages means that they're just, like, for example, aren't enough IUDs in a village because the company has shifted to making face masks or syringes or whatever. Right. Um, so there's just a huge amount of reasons um, why women, like, aren't accessing birth yeah. control and so therefore having unintended pregnancies. Um, and if NGOs, like, pre- a couple days ago, um, if NGOs couldn't provide information about safe abortions, that meant that women will be go at more women will die as they access unsafe alternatives. Um, we also, like, the pandemic means that less women want to keep pregnancies that they might have wanted to keep in other situations because they lost their jobs, mm -hmm. they um, feel unsafe, they don't yeah. have enough food to feed their existing children. So keeping, for the majority of the pandemic, this policy has made it incredibly difficult for many women to access the services they need and like has threatened people's lives yeah um so looking forward we may think that the biden administration has like come in and they've taken gotten rid of this executive order but as we've seen like with every progressive president the global gag rule gets more intense and cuts off even more funding and like what's next like all funding after just health funding, just health funding. Mm -hmm. um, so what some organizations have suggested, um, including the Guttmacher Institute, is that the Dems have this wonderful opportunity to nip this in the bud completely. Yeah, because they currently, it. yeah, they can get rid of it completely because they control the presidency, the House and the Senate. Um, instead of allowing for this ping-ponging to continue, they could permanently repeal the global gag rule. Um, and also ensure the rights to full reproductive health services abroad so if they made some legislation that said that you couldn't restrict essentially the free speech of these organizations yeah um then the global gag rule wouldn't be legal if probably when the next republican is president um huh. so yeah that's the global gag rule it's really interesting um, i have never heard about this in my life and i feel like you've just blown my mind um planned parenthood international has a whole website on it and it's like really interesting information um it like huge whiplash right in the international aid community oh my gosh that must be so frightening yeah. Oh, yeah yeah oh my gosh that is a lot no we'll definitely pop that link in the show notes i think mm -hmm. and i would love to see um maybe you can provide an update um fingers crossed if we get one um, if they're able to repeal this permanently. That would be awesome. So, on 
into the pop culture portion of the show. And kind of like politics, this was a pretty bonkers month. Um, Army Hammer is apparently a cannibal. Uh, Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles are together, allegedly. Claire and Dale of The Bachelor et are not. So, you know, there is a lot we could discuss. Um, But there's one story that has captivated me like no other. And that is the release and surrounding drama of Olivia Rodrigo's song, Driver's License. So, fasten your seatbelt. Yeah, giggles. I I appreciate some Uh laughs there. Thank you, thank you. We are going on a road trip. (laughs) Yeah, really hammering this one home. Um, But I am determined for this to be the most comprehensive one. I have done a lot of research. I have listened to other podcasts and YouTubers speak about this, but I'm determined for mine to be the most comprehensive oral history of what's going on with driver's license. Um, I have even taken it upon myself to watch the entirety of High School Musical, the musical, the series, which will become important later in my story. So, you know, don't say I don't do the research for you guys. I am (laughs) freaking committed. So, you know what? I'm not going to give too much away at the beginning. We're just going to wind this back to the start. And I will need to introduce some crucial characters for you. So first we have Olivia Rodrigo. And she is a 17-year-old actress and singer who first became well-known as the lead of a Disney Channel show called Bizardvark in 2016. Now, when I say well-known, I forgive you if you'd never heard of it or her because um, I had never heard of Bizardvark. Um, but it's about two teenage best friends who make funny videos on the internet and then kind of get enough fame that they can... I'm not going to say like join a hype house, but like connect with other people on like famous people on the platform. So it's kind of like iCarly, but like institutionalized. Um, (laughs) Jake Paul is in it. So that's kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, Never heard of this, but she is, she is the star of that show. And if you're a new girl fan, you may actually recognize her as one of Jess's students um, in an episode where Jess is like the principal and tries to win the respect of like the sassy kids in school (laughs) by introducing them to Nick, who is the author of their favorite series, the Pepperwood Chronicles. And they absolutely worship Nick and it's kind of Jess's in um, to become friends with the students. And she is one of the students. So, I mean, I think when I was researching her, I was like, oh, is this the only stuff she's been in? Like, this is all pretty recent. And then I remember that she's literally a child. So this mm-hmm. is like still a pretty early start for her. But back in February 2019, she was cast as Nini in the Disney Channel series High School Musical, the musical, the series. Now, this does get a little bit complicated because of the repetition of the words uh, musical there. So just pay extra attention but high school musical the musical the series is a mockumentary about the students who go to the high school in um utah where high school musical was filmed and this like Mm -hmm. new drama teacher shows up and is like i cannot believe that the school where high school musical was filmed has never performed high school musical as their school production because apparently that's a thing you can do now. Like you can perform the movie as yeah, a musical in your school. So Olivia's character Nini is cast as Gabriella in 
High School Musical, the musical, the series, like in their production of High School Musical. And her ex-boyfriend, Ricky, is cast as Troy. Now, Ricky is played by a guy called Joshua Bassett. Now, he is now 20. So if we're taking this back to like February 2019, I believe Olivia had just turned like 16 and Josh would have been about 18 so that's what we're like playing with here um, and they like filmed it before that too so like so they got cast they in february they like okay. went pretty much into filming and the show came out in november so okay yeah we're talking about them being like 16 and like 18 let's say there okay so in the series we're following them trying to put on this musical but also figure out their relationship because when the series dropped in november 2019 rumors started swirling that like troy and gabriella or like zach efron and vanessa hudgens and like ricky and nini josh and olivia were actually dating in real life so it really feeds into that high school musical canon of people playing characters and them dating Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so the reason now this is the bit that i think was a bit underreported like people have kind of said they were dating but it was something they'd never really confirmed they'd never like confirmed being together they'd never confirmed a breakup so i'm like how do people know about this like i need evidence to believe it because it's very crucial for the Mm -hmm. song that i'm about to get to hopefully soon because you're probably wondering when are we going to get to the actual song because we seem like (laughs) two years out of it right now but i will get there so basically there were some like cutesy Instagram pictures um, posted. They also wrote songs together for the show. That's kind of cute behavior. But there was, these are the two most crucial pieces of evidence in my mind. There was a Los Angeles Times article where Josh revealed that he improvised a scene where his character tells Olivia's character that he loves her. And he changed the lines like to reference their in real life relationship. And like, she got emotional, like, like, listening to him say that so it wasn't just the ricky and nini uh history that he was referencing it was olivia and josh history so mm. that's important and she also posted a video of her singing an original song on instagram about someone with a brown eyed grin and messy hair i feel like i got that from an article i feel i should listen to that back because maybe that's just bad lyrics i'm sorry olivia <laughs> but brown eyed grin doesn't really make sense anyway he has brown eyes he smiles he has messy hair and this was in March 2020. So that's my evidence. I'm like pretty sure there was like a little something, something going on. Mm-hmm. So a month later, though, they stopped liking each other's posts. So damn. And like we're thinking, right? These are like young kids. So in March 2020, I think Olivia would have been, I know she's turning 18. Um, this february so in march 2020 she would have been like freshly 17 right and Mm -hmm. he's like maybe like 19 ish and you know this is the pandemic has just hit so maybe they're falling out of touch because of that like the show has stopped Mm -hmm. filming they don't have like these um they don't have like the filming commitments but they also don't have the publicity commitments and now there's a pandemic so like what's going on so they stopped liking each other's photos in like april 2020 and then in august she posted a tiktok about failed relationships so it was like her listening to the sad song it was like you think you can upset me i wrote this song and then it was like and that's on failed relationships so cool right 
So now we're going to flash forward from August 2020 to January 8th, 2021. And that is when Olivia released her debut single, Driver's License. And it is this super emotional heartbreak ballad where she sings about getting her driver's license and how that was something her and a mysterious guy that she's still in love with were excited about together. And now they're not together and she's sad. And people went wild for this song, right? It -hmm. broke a ton of records. She had the most single-day streams for a non-holiday song on Spotify, which she achieved on, like, the fourth day that the song came out. It has been, like, a number one around the world, and it's been praised by, like, Taylor Swift. Cardi B tweeted about it. So, like, a super, super huge song, which is, like, pretty unprecedented for, like, a debut single. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, not connected to the show or whatever. So... I think there's, like, a few reasons this, like, blew up massively. Um, I think, you know, she has TikTok. Like, she had a heap of TikTok mm-hmm. followers. She'd been teasing it for quite a while. And people were really, like, hyped up and excited about this song. Um, it's also a really good song. Like, I've shown it to people and I'm like, oh, this is – it's legit good. It's it's a quality mm-hmm. song. But also, there is drama around it. And that gets people's attention, right? I mean, even mm-hmm. if we're thinking about the two people who I've mentioned, Taylor Swift and Cardi B, a lot of like Taylor Swift songs have got massive attention because people are connecting them to a guy that she used to date, right? And they're trying to figure that out and they're having fun with that. Or like Cardi B's WAP got, you know, that was kind of like this controversial song that like, you know, Ben Shapiro is making outraged videos about <laughs> and that helped blow it up more. In this case, there are some lyrics that caught people's attention and made them believe that it was about Josh. So I'm going to read some. She says, I guess you didn't mean what you wrote in that song about me because you say forever. Now I drive alone past your street. Sad. But the big one is, and you're probably with that blonde girl who always made me doubt. She's so much older than me. She's everything I'm insecure about. Now, the reason that people think that this is about Josh is because they have connected him to a blonde girl, right? No way. Yeah. Now, the blonde girl is, people think, Sabrina Carpenter. And she is a fellow Disney star. Now, she's also, she's blonde and she's 21. So, that's much older than Olivia, who's 17. Mm-hmm. If you can do math, that's four years older. So... <laughs> I know her from Sierra Burgess is a Loser. She's also in Tall Girl. She's the Tall Girl's um, sister. And she is in uh, Work It, which came out last year. It was like this little dance movie that was kind of fun. And she and Josh have been spotted out for lunch together going back to like last August. Also around the time that Olivia posted that TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. They went as Shark Boy and Lava Girl together for Halloween, which like you know, maybe a friend think feels like a couple's costume to me. I'm going to say it. Um, so people are going pretty crazy about this. And in a way, like, you know, I feel kind of bad for Sabrina when this happened. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. Because I don't think the lyrics are that bad. To read them again, she said, you're probably with that blonde girl who always made me doubt. She's so much older than me. She's everything I'm insecure about. Now, the last two... I think are fine. The first two, okay, that blonde girl is maybe a little dismissive if you want to read into Mm -hmm. it, like, you know, of her talents or her as a whole person. 
who always made me doubt does hint at a sketchy friendship. So, yes. you know. Um, and look, Sabrina Carpenter is already, like, super famous. She has, like, millions of Instagram followers and has, you know, been well-known for years. But it would kind of suck to have, like, your relationship pulled into this story, mm-hmm. right? Like, I feel for in a way. Until she released her song. No way. Yeah. Now it's called Skin and it has lyrics like the following. I'm going to read it. Maybe blonde was the only rhyme. But you've been telling your side, so I'll be telling mine. You can try to get under my, under my, under my skin while he's on my, yeah, all of my, all of my, all of my skin. So don't drive yourself Mm. insane. Yeah. Now, this is definitely a driver's license response. Like, you cannot oh, for sure. otherwise, right? Like, so yeah. there's a, like, yeah, analyzing this in two different ways. I think it's a little bit mean to make fun of her songwriting, which I think this is done. Like, saying blonde was the only rhyme and don't drive yourself insane. That feels like you're making fun of her songwriting, which I don't think mm-hmm. is nice. And then you're saying... Like, don't let it get all on your skin because we're banging. Like, that's what you're essentially writing, right? Like, she's, like, yes. rubbing it in her face. Olivia said she's still in love with this dude. And she's like, well, we're banging. And I just, like, I think it's kind of mean. Like, I get it. Okay, blonde girl could be dismissive. It really sucked for your relationship to be drawn into this international spotlight. But I don't think it's nice that when you're 21 and somebody is mm-hmm. 17 and she's written about her heartbreak, right? Okay, whatever that, like, two lyrics are from the song about Sabrina the overwhelming theme of the song is her own personal heartbreak Mm -hmm. I don't think it's nice to come along and like mock her songwriting ability mock her lyrics and then brag about banging the guy that she's missing you know so it's a lot for me Um, I think she was kind of just jumping on the biggest song in the world right like it's Mm -hmm. it's an easy way to get some some streams Um, but the whole thing is like it's kind of messy and maybe it's a big marketing ploy, but it's worked on me. I am, I am hyped up in it. Um, so yeah, I think what this has, it's got me thinking about a lot of different things. Right. So I think it's fascinating because it's relatable. So mm-hmm. everyone has been in or like knows a situation with, you know, where the lines are blurred and we're not really sure who's in the right and people are hurt and and people are angry and people on the outside have opinions. And I think that all feels like very relatable. And I'm not actually sure if anything wrong happened here. Probably not. You know what? Probably like Olivia and Josh just broke up and now he's dating a different girl. And, Mm -hmm. but it does have that like messiness that I think everyone has either first or secondhand experience with. So it's very relatable, like not just the song, the whole drama around it too. But also, I think this feels like a high school throwback, you know? The, like, there was drama like this when I was in high school, and it's, like, kind of comforting to know that, like, even if this generation feels very different, like, you you know, they're all got perfect makeup and perfect TikToks and everything, they're all still having the same kind of drama that we had when we were younger, Mm -hmm. and it does give you that sort of nostalgia but also make you think how much better it is to be older now when hopefully this is a little less intense. I think the other part is it's something that like as older people, we can 
I, you know, anyone who's experienced heartbreak before or and come out the other side can like look at this whole situation and be like, you guys are all going to be fine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's all going to be fine. Like, okay, Sabrina and Josh, they probably, like, odds are, won't end up. They're not going to, like, you know, marry each other, whatever. And Olivia's going to get over this and everyone's going to be fine. But you can just, like, feel for them being mm-hmm. in it. Like, some of Olivia's lyrics are like, and all my friends are tired of hearing how much I miss you, but I kind of feel sorry for them because they'll never know you the way that I do. And then things like, I know we weren't perfect, but I've never felt this way for no one. And I just can't imagine how you could be so okay now that I'm gone. And I'm like, you Aww. will be okay, baby girl. Like, and you will feel this way about someone else, you know? Mm-hmm. It's all going to be okay. I think it's a really interesting exercise in perspective. You know, as people who can look into this song and this drama as outsiders. Mm-hmm. Thankfully for the people involved in it, it will all pass. And I'm really excited for them to all blossom because I really do wish them all well. And I think there's been fans on both sides who have got way too invested. Like, you guys think I'm invested? Like, there's people who are, like, abusing mm-hmm. all three sides on social media and... We don't need to do that, you know? We just need mm-hmm. to see these people flourish because I think their all their careers are going off and they'll sort the personal life side out too. And it's all mm-hmm. going to be good. I'm very excited for them. Those, those rascally Disney kids. Good for them. Alrighty then. Well, that is it for another episode of Different Things Can Be Sad. Um, Micah, mm-hmm. have you got much in store for February? I am sort of moving, which is exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And Valentine's Day? Valentine's Day is coming up? Valentine's Day is coming That's up. exciting. And Valentine's Day. <gasps> very well, exciting. Well, that's like That is very exciting. Mm-hmm. And it's like a long weekend here because it's President's Day. Oh, so nice. Oh, I guess we get a long, a long weekends don't affect me in any way. <laughs> 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 I'm actually going um upstate that weekend, so I am nice. excited to have a little breakaway. It's probably going to be like super snowy and absolutely freezing, but mm-hmm. it'll be nice to be snow down and freezing somewhere else, you know? Perfect. <laughs> um, if people want to keep up with you and see how this moving goes, where can they do so? They can follow me on Twitter mm-hmm. or Instagram at just my name at Micah Han. You can see me tweet about the mental breakdowns I'm having TAing over Zoom. So good for you, girl. Good time. You can mm-hmm. uh, send Micah some well wishes. I think that would be nice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and I am at Yasmin Lomax just on Instagram. The Twitter has officially been binned. It is no more. So just Insta for now. You can keep up with um, any book recommendations that I have and potentially some pictures of my bagels. So good party exciting hashtag content but until next time bye, bye.